0: Please remain standing as you are able and will you follow after me as we follow after the practice of Jesus who would have recited what he called the great commandment, uh, at least three times a day and when he came before the scripture. Shema Israel. Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Ahad. Hear O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. This summer we're spending uh, time with Paul's letter to... Uh Corinthians, First Corinthians, which is written in response to two things: one, reports that have come to Paul from messengers talking about problems there in the church, and then questions that they wrote about and ask him for his opinion. Apparently, this morning Paul is dealing with something that got reported to him. This is chapter five, beginning in verse one. It is reported that there is sexual immorality among you that is such that the pagans do not even tolerate. A man sleeping with his father's wife. And you are proud when you ought to have gone into mourning and you should have uh, taken the one who had done this act out of your fellowship. Now, while I am not present with you physically, I am present with you in spirit. And in spirit, I have already made judgment on, on this matter, on the one who has done such thing. And when you are gathered or assembled together again, And I am there in spirit, and the Lord Jesus' power is present. You are to hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that on the day of the Lord his spirit may be saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. Some of you may remember about two decades ago, there was a, a church in Oklahoma, And the pastor is preaching on uh, one Sunday morning, and he points out a woman in the congregation and announces to the congregation that she is an adulteress who is living in sin. Well, her response to that was to take him to court, and she won. And the pastor lost, and I think he deserved it. And then maybe more recently in the last two months, you've seen that YouTube video. I think it has, it's, it's got a couple of different versions, uh, but it has about a quarter of a million views. And you can look it up under pastor has a bad day or pastor goes on a rant. And it's about a pastor who's behind the pulpit when suddenly he notices a congregational member is sleeping during his sermon. And so he stops. Now, if I stopped every time that happened, we'd never get through this thing, but He does. And he walks down from the pulpit and says, now wait a minute. You need to pay attention to me. I'm not your English teacher. This is important. I'm the preacher, and this is about eternal life. But it doesn't stop there. Then he walks on out into the congregation, and he points out a couple that's engaged to be married. in a few. I'm supposed to do their marriage in a few months. And you, you're one of my worst members, points to the prospective groom. You're not worth 15 cents. I don't know if I should do your wedding. And then you, and points to his uh, fiance. You want to marry him? I don't know if I should have you do that when he doesn't even know where he belongs. But he's not finished. He goes over and says, stand up, big boy, and has the, uh, the, the the perspective group stand up and again says something critical to him and then says, but you know I love you. Gives him a hug. But he's not finished. He starts to go back and then he stops and points at the sound booth and says, is the camera still on me? And then he goes on a rant about how the sound booth has become their own private kingdom, just doing whatever they want. But he's not done yet. Makes his way back toward the pulpit and stops. And we don't see the woman on the uh, cell phone video or however they're filming it. And he points out a woman, sweet woman, he says, with two children. He said, but but one day, he said, your children are going to turn against you. And when they do, don't get in my way. I am not their mother, I'm the preacher, and I'm going to set them straight. And it goes from there. Well, understandably, the pastor has uh, received a lot of comments about this message on Facebook. And on YouTube, and most of them not positive. And I think he probably deserves it. Well, we've got newspaper evidence for the first case in Oklahoma, and we certainly have the video evidence there on YouTube from the second case. But there's a third case I wanted to point out to you, and we've got evidence for that too. There's a church gathering in Corinth, and they're reading a letter from their pastor name is Paul. And he said, now, I want you to know there's a guy that does something that even the pagans don't tolerate. He's sleeping with his father's wife, and you need to do something about that. Well, there are some people who, when Paul does this, they cheer him and they go, That a boy, Paul, we can't let sexual sin go unchecked. And and they're with him. But there are others who are like, Whoa, Paul, settle down. And he gets some criticism. Well, this morning, I would like to offer a brief defense of what Paul does. I think what Paul is doing is slightly different than the two uh, illustrations that I began the message with. Uh, I I think you might say, what are the differences? Well, initially there are some things we could talk about, which is, uh, the error that Paul is correcting is certainly worse than anything the preacher on YouTube is after and, and even would be considered probably worse than what happened in Oklahoma. You could make that argument Uh, or you could make the argument that, well, the preacher in Oklahoma, I'm sure is a, a fine preacher. And the one on the YouTube probably is too, but neither one of them have seen Jesus in person. Neither one of them is an apostle who's written half the New Testament. So since Paul's done these things, maybe we ought to give him a break and listen to him. Maybe. But my argument for listening to Paul is a little different than that this morning. I want to walk through it with you, if I may. The first thing is I want to say I believe all three pastors care. And I think generally... Pastors care or they wouldn't get up on the 4th of July weekend and and come over to the church and, and neither would the congregants if they didn't care. But what they care about may be two different things. I get the sense that the first two preachers I mentioned care more about the issue than the person who's affected by the issue. It's more important for one of them to make a stand about morality, no matter who gets embarrassed in public, than it is the person that is struggling with this issue. And on, I think, the YouTube, it's more important that the pastor establishes his spiritual authority and that he's in charge than any of the discomfort that the various people in the congregation who have been called out might be experiencing I think so often the church errs when we decide we want to take a stand on an issue and we make the issue more important than the people who actually are struggling with the issue and are affected by the issue. And I want to say to you this morning that I think Paul cares probably more about the person who is committing this deed than he cares about calling out the deed as sinful. Well, why do you say that? Because what's interesting to me is Paul said, I want you to confront him and I want you to hand him over to to Satan, which is like a euphemism, which is don't let him come to your church suppers and, and don't let him come to Bible study. I mean, let him know he's out of bounds so that his spirit may be saved. What Paul hopes for ultimately is the restoration of this individual, that this individual will indeed with the with the church's help find their way back on the path. When you just humiliate and shame people publicly and call them out uh, for their stuff, uh, their chances of returning are pretty slim. Because people tend to fall away even without being publicly embarrassed. Privately, people get embarrassed all the time. They feel like somehow their life doesn't add up. And so it's interesting to me as a pastor to note that when people begin to struggle in their relationships, or one of their children is struggling, or there's, they've gone through a downsizing at work, rather than come to the community in the church as they are with their struggles, they disappear until they think they've got life put back together again and then they reappear. So it tells me that people have uh, very little tolerance for being embarrassed anyway in their life. And then when they come to the community and find that they are embarrassed further, uh, it's generally difficult for them ever to find their way back in the door. But i and so one of the things I think Paul is doing is Paul is focusing not on punishment and not on retribution, but Paul is focusing on a correction that actually will restore the individual. And uh, I think that's all the difference in the world. And I think a lot of times in our society it's just easier to take a stand on an issue, uh, put a, throw everyone into one basket, condemn them on whatever it is, and not have to deal with their individual circumstances or where they might go. Next, Paul has a plan for dealing with this person bringing them back into fellowship. Uh, The second thing I want to point out to you that I think we see in Paul is he doesn't call out the individual. If you read the letter carefully, he's calling out the congregation. I think that makes all the difference in the world. Because when you call out the individual, you basically are blaming them and dismissing them and they're gone. But when you call out the community, you're putting the responsibility on the community to be the kind of people... That can have a door open for the person to come back. And that recognizes that perhaps they played some role in the person leaving in the first place. It's too easy when, they, when sins are treated on an individual kind of our, our, our an issue kind of basis and we just lump everybody together. It's too easy to put all the blame on them and never think about what kind of community are we that lets a person get so far off the track. And so Paul is answering that great rhetorical question from the Bible. Remember, um, God's looking for uh, Abel and says to Cain, where's your brother? And Cain says, well, am I my brother's keeper? And it's a rhetorical question, but the answer God really wants is yes. Yes. Yes, I am. There's something about the way I live my life. There's something about the way I am in community that affects other people. And so Paul is putting some responsibility on this congregation and calling them to come together with this person in such a way that lets them know that they're off the path, but lets them know the way back onto the path. We might call it in other terms an intervention. I don't know if you've ever had the... um, a terrible duty to be a part of an intervention, but it's where family and support systems will get together with the person that they believe is off the path, and and they will basically say they're not going to arrange their lives anymore to support that person being off the path. That they're going to arrange their lives and interact with that person in a way that will enable them to face their issues and get back on the particular path. Um, Our friend Chris Estes, who does so much work with recovery on our campuses and in the San Antonio community, says that a lot of the AA meetings are hosted in a place called Club 12. And when somebody needs to be in recovery, uh, a sponsor or prospective sponsor might bring them to Club 12 and say, look, inside this building, you will find help and you will find support and we will walk through the steps with you, but you will go through the steps. But you can choose not to do this. And you can choose to go your own way. And then he said, and I want to point out this. And they take them behind Club 12 and there's a ditch. And they said, and you may find yourself living there. And when you find yourself living there, remember that we're here. And that you can come back in. There will be people who will support you, who will walk with you, and work the steps with you. In a, in a sort of a group intervention part they remind the people you've got the choice you've got the option but you can't keep going the way you're going and when you get to the end of the rope we'll be here but if you want to come and be here with us before you get to the end of the rope we're here as well so that the community takes some responsibility there's a term that therapists use from time to time you may have heard it identified patient have you ever heard that term in other words there might be a person that that has their acting out in life in some way and sometimes the counselor won't just deal with them, but deal with their entire family system. Um, our our uh, uh, first attempt at parenting, uh, we parented and hovered so well that our, our we had our child had uh, separation anxiety issues. So, as good modern educated parents, we went right to the counselor. Counselor talked to the uh, our child for just a few moments, then called us in, and basically said, "Does your child have any responsibilities?" No. No lists, no jobs, no nothing. We do everything for the child. And basically what the counselor was saying is that you need to set up your community and system in such a way that they build their self-esteem and they learn to do things for themselves. He is the identified patient because he's crying at school, but the whole community bears responsibility and needs to look at the way they're acting and interacting for health to come about, and I think that 's what Paul's saying this person is doing is doing a wrong thing they 're off the path, but he's the identified person. What kind of community are you that you 've actually allowed this, encouraged it, and haven 't made a way for the person to correct it and then be restored to community so Paul calls on the community to be responsible because communities are very significant. In the ancient world, more so, they recognize that than we do as Western individualists. But there's a Hebraic take on the prodigal son that's really helpful for me. Uh, Ray Vanderland talks about that once Jesus says that the the son left his parents and went off to a far country, every Jew listens to the parable doesn't even have to listen to the next few sentences. They know what's going to happen. You can't go to the far country, which is just... Another culture, a culture that's not a culture of faith. You can't go there by yourself and make it on your own. And say they don't have to listen to the next few sentences of the parable. They know what Jesus is going to say, which is it's going to go real bad for this guy because he's trying to do it by himself. And so Jesus knew, the Jews knew, Paul knew, Christians knew the importance of being a community That helps a person stay on the path and when they're off the path is able to challenge them, but challenge them in such a way as to keep the door open so that they can come back to uh, the path. The community becomes very significant and I think Paul knows this. And so he's not talking to the guy, he's talking to the church and says, church, this is your responsibility. You'll need to do something about this. And I think that's different than calling a person out individually who's sitting in the worship service and calling out the people around them that says, okay, what are you doing? How are you being the community? Because that becomes becomes uh, key in living a Christian life because the Christian life typically is going to be countercultural, And we're going to need all the support that we can get to live this kind of life. On 4th of July Sunday, might be appropriate to... count. Ca- to to quote one of our founding fathers in the Boston area, and you'll remember he made this quote. He said, we will either hang together or we will hang separately. And it's that way in the Christian life. We will, in the face of this culture in Corinth, which is about as anti-Judeo-Christian as you can get, we'll either be together or, just like this man, we'll get picked off one by one and so he shifts the responsibility away from the person who's certainly responsible for their choices but challenges the community to pick up some of their responsibility in it. But I think Paul's doing more than that. All the way through the letter to Corinth, he's tackling problem after problem after problem. And you read this letter and you might think, well, gosh, the point of Christianity is to make sure that we fix everybody and make sure they don't get out of line and do bad things. But when you read underneath... What Paul is really doing is he's trying to create a community that can help people stay on the path in their life. He's less interested in eliminating the negative as to building a community that can support the positive. Does that make sense? So it's not so much about you're doing this wrong, you're suing each other, you've got a guy living out of control, you're bragging, you're 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 dividing. Those are all the issues. But he sees that they're symptomatic of the fact that they don't hang together underneath. And so he wants to create a community that's strong enough so that people will live the kind of life that God's calling them to and make the kind of difference in the world that they can make. And that doesn't happen individually. It happens in community One of the most powerful stories I've ever read was a book called Lest Innocent Blood Be Shed. And it was the story of a small French town called La Chambon. In La Chambon, it was um, a French uh, Protestant Huguenots who lived in this town. And during World War II... Under the leadership of their pastor, Andre Trochme, they hid anywhere between 1,000 and 5,000, it's not real clear, Jews from the Nazis. So what would happen is when the Nazis would flood the town looking for Jews, they, they would hide the Jews in the countryside. And when the Nazis would kind of pull back, they would bring the Jews and hide them in their homes. And every church member in that town played their part and no one cracked under the Nazi pressure. Eventually, Trocmé's brother, Daniel, who was a a local government official, which helped cement the the community even further, uh, was caught by the Nazis, put into a concentration camp, and executed. But even then, he never gave it away. And I thought about that book that I read years ago called Less Innocent Blood Be Shed. And I don't remember anybody in the community, I don't remember, like, did they act out? Did they have anger issues? Were they breaking some laws? Did they have, uh, any of them ever have an affair? I mean, I don't remember any of that. Any of them having trouble drinking too much wine? Probably some did. I don't remember that. But what I remember was a community that saved maybe 5,000 lives by the fact that they were a community focusing not so much on what was wrong, but focusing on their relationships with one another so they could do what was right. And I think ultimately, that's what Paul is after. People who can live together in such a way that those who are off the path can recognize it, can be welcomed back onto the path, and that they can all go further down that path together. And it's nothing that any of us can ever do by ourselves. It's only something that we can all do together.